Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Who Says No. I'm Sam Quinn, one of your hosts. Colin is not in today, but we have a good reason for that. We are going to talk to the author of a book that I just finished reading and is one of my favorite basketball books that I've read in quite some time. Jake Fisher is the author of Built to Lose. It is a book about my favorite basketball topic, tanking. Jake, how are you doing today? (laughs) I'm doing well, man. Thank you for having me and thank you uh, for those kind words. I appreciate it. This was like, first of all, I just have to say off the top, I'm jealous of you because as listeners of this podcast know, I love nothing more than just tearing a team down from the studs and tanking it for like five years and bringing in a bunch of top picks. Like this is my favorite topic in basketball, except for maybe the Stepien rule, which is a whole other episode. Somebody has to write a book about that (laughs) if they haven't already. I'm sure Ted Stepien has had a book written about it. But anyway. Your book, it was about the topic of tanking, and what I found so interesting about it is I think the obvious comparison is to your own Weitzman's book, uh, um, Tanking to the Top, that was purely about the 76ers. Your book is a bit broader. It obviously writes quite a bit about Sam Hinkie, but it's really about an era in NBA history, and it's built around the 2014 NBA draft, which, as you wrote several times in the book, and obviously it hasn't turned out to be true, but at the time we were looking at this draft as like one of the best in NBA history, right? Like we thought Andrew Wiggins was Maple Jordan. We thought Jabari Parker was Carmelo Anthony. It didn't turn out that way, but I want to talk about the decision to structure it in that way and not to hone in on a single specific team or storyline. What was, what motivated that decision? Like how did you decide this is what I want to build this book around? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just Sam Hankey and the Sixers process. As you mentioned, I mean, that 2014 class was everything and anything back in the day. And a lot of analytical minded executives along with Sam. Rob Hennigan comes to power in Orlando and they trade Dwight Howard to L.A. Phoenix, you know, Ryan McDonough takes over after the Suns sign and trade Steve Nash away to the Lakers. The Celtics, people forget. Obviously, they're in the news right now with Danny Ainge and Brad Stevens, but you know, they traded KG and Paul Pierce to Brooklyn the same night that Hinky traded Drew Holiday to New Orleans in 2013 during that draft and hired Brad Stevens, you know, in the same fold as Philly hiring Brett Brown. So there was definitely a concerted effort across the league of that 14 class was considered to be the best class since 2003. And who was running the league at the time? But the Miami Heat that were built with three guys from the top five of that 03 class. So all those compounding factors coming up at the same exact time, I'm, that clearly, I think, pushed this trend of tanking becoming like a golden era of basketball in a sense of like team building strategy kind of superseding the actual games on a nightly basis. I think that was the moment in NBA history where we really started to grasp the concept of like the treadmill of mediocrity, right? Like where owners started to think, Maybe the goal isn't just to be good every year and then maybe get a little bit better. If you want to win a championship, something I say frequently on this show is that you don't win a championship by accident. It takes intention. It takes a willing decision to say our goal is not to win. Our goal is to win it all. And you're right. That was the period in NBA history where I think that started to crystallize. Right. It wasn't just Hinky. It was a lot of other different teams. Boston in particular was really fascinating to me. Because they tried to tank very hard. They end up with one lottery pick. It was Marcus Smart. And then they get back up into, I think they were the eight seed or the seven seed that next year in the East. Yeah, because they played Cleveland in the first round that mm-hmm. next year. So they would have been the eight, I think. But that was a topic of the book in general that I found really interesting. 
was there were a few teams in that era that tried to tank but couldn't. There's a great scene yes. in the book of the Phoenix Suns, the 2014-15 Phoenix Suns, who are, what, or rather the 2013-14 Phoenix Suns, who are just one of the most fun teams to watch relative to their era in NBA history. That was the Eric Bledsoe-Goran Dragic team. And there's a great scene in the book of them before the season where they all just kind of look around and realize, like, hey, we're pretty good. Like, we're not going to... We're not going to live out management's fantasy here and get a top pick. Like, I remember Channing Fry kind of going, like, wow, like, we're good. We're going to win some games here with Bledsoe and Dragic. So I know that we always say, oh, players don't tank. But a lot of what the book focuses on is the players' reaction tanking, right? Like, Thaddeus mm-hmm. Young has this moment where he goes, I know the Sixers are trying to lose, so I'm going to audition. I'm going to score a bunch of points. And he scores 35 or six games in a row, you know? Jay Crowder has that moment where he pulls Brad Stevens aside and he says, like, hey, man, are we tanking? Like, just so I know, just be honest with me. So from a player perspective, like, what do you think a player is thinking when he has realized we are trying to lose games? Yeah, I mean, just to clarify for the listeners, all those details you mentioned, you know, those are original scenes that are in the book. I think that's my big selling pitch. It's that I talked to over 300 people for this, players, agents, coaches, executives, and you know, you can attest to it, Sam. Every page is is littered with new information that you're not going to find anywhere else. And to, to your point, the breadth of stories important. in this book that I had never heard before, even to somebody who does this for a living, is really remarkable. Like there are quotes Maybe. in here from guys that, like, I genuinely don't know how you found them. <laughs> how I found the person, or how I found yeah, the like both, but really the person. <laughs> like there are quotes in there from guys that I'm like, wait, like this dude was on a ten day and like. You still took the time to talk to him. It was really incredible. Thank you, man. Yeah, I, I think, you know, just like you said, the, the the player perspective of tanking, I think, is a case-by-case basis. If you're a veteran player who, like Thad Young, like, you know, Jeff Green in Boston, or like those, like Channing Frye and the, and the Morris Twins in Phoenix, you know, those guys are all looking at that as an opportunity to, play well in this vacuum where there's no expectations, get their stats up and get out of there. Evan Turner, one of my favorite details in the book, he found Brad Stevens not once but twice in the post-game hallway, both in Boston and in Philly, going up to Brad at a prior relationship. Thad Mata was uh, the coach at Butler before Brad Stevens, so they had that connection, and they also had met previously at Team USA stuff. And, and Evan's going up to Brad and begging for the Celtics to trade for him. So... I think those guys clearly had their motivations to use that opportunity to find a greener pasture. But the young players, the 10-day contract guys, the the rookies who were just figuring it out, it was an amazing opportunity for a lot of people, especially the Robert Covingtons and the TJ McConnells, and even the 10-day contract guys like a Tim Frazier who comes in from the main Red Claws, and he's trying to go to uh their their portland maine practice facility to go pick up his sneakers because he was working he was with maine before philly called him up one season i believe it was 2014-15 and he doesn't even have his own sneakers he wears the shoes that avery bradley wore to the arena that night for his nba debut the only last two 10-day contracts with philly but then portland signs him and he's still kicking around i believe he was he's in he's with memphis right now so Hinky gave a lot of opportunities to those 10-day guys, and so did other teams. So I think the perspective of the player is, is you know, it depends on who that person is. 
There's a great story in the book. I won't spoil it about Tim Frazier's draft workout with Philly that I we was can just. Spoil it. We can, we oh, can you can spoil, spoil it. Okay. So Tim Frazier at the time was let's just say not very draft, not very highly regarded going into the draft. But Dante Exum, who I believe coming into that class was either number three or number four ranked prospect, like before that season, the Sixers are trying to evaluate Dante Exum. So they say, hey, will you play one-on-one with Tim Frazier, this guy that doesn't really matter? And Tim Frazier smokes him. And I think that's one of those draft stories where, like, even if Tim Frazier doesn't become a top pick after that, that's something that reminds, like, that reminds executives, like, hey, this dude might actually be able to play. Like, he might actually be able to have a career. And not coincidentally, Philly did not end up drafting Dante Axum after that. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure on the Sixers, both internally and externally, to take Dante Axum. That, that, that 2014 class was considered to be a seven-player draft by the time the draft was rolling around. At first, it was Wiggins and Parker, right? But then Embiid becomes the guy at a certain point around January that year. You know, Fred Hoiberg, then later the Bulls coach. Back then, he was the Iowa State head coach. You know, Kansas goes to Iowa State, and Joel just demolishes that team. And Hoiberg says after the game, and he still says it today, that was the best college game he ever saw. Then you had Aaron Gordon, who was an athletic freak, obviously, in Arizona. Dante Exum was the international man of mystery. Marcus Smart was, you know, the sophomore grizzle point guard that he always has been. And then you had Julius Randle. And Exum had these Australian ties to Brett Brown. Brett coached his father. Uh, back in the day at the NBL, and they wanted to see him. They wanted to get a barometer of this guy because he hadn't played against anybody older than 19 on tape. And Philly gave his agent at the time was Rob Palinka before he joined the Lakers. They gave Rob Palinka a list of players to work out against, and Palinka picked Tim Frazier, and that's who destroyed Dante Exum. And ultimately, I, I, I really do think that. Philly ruled him out completely of taking him later down the draft when they had the 10th pick, too. Exum never was going to be there, but I don't think they would have taken him at 10 either. I think the international man of mystery angle made a lot of sense for Exum. I remember at the time, people were comparing him to Kobe Bryant, which now that we've seen him in the NBA is ludicrous. Um, but at the time, you're right. Nobody knew anything about Dante Exum. Frankly, teams did not know that much about Joel Embiid either. There's a great story in the book. I can't remember. I might have heard this somewhere else as well about Joel Embiid wanting to redshirt his freshman year at Kansas because he didn't think he was good enough after a practice. And Bill Self says, no, man, you're not redshirting. You're going to be the number one pick. He almost yeah. was the number one pick. People forget this. It was pretty clear for maybe a week or two of the draft process. Joel Embiid has this incredible workout. I think it was in L.A., where everybody sees they're just like, oh, man, this guy is Hakeem Olajuwon with a three-point shot. Then, of course, he gets hurt and that changes. But one of my favorite things about the book was that there are a lot of almost got him stories. Like, I had never heard about how obsessed Atlanta was with Giannis Antetokounmpo, for instance. Like, mm-hmm. Milwaukee was really, really interested in Joel Embiid, too. They could have picked him. They didn't because of his medicals. So I'll just give you the floor What was the one almost got him story from this book that really stood out to you most? I think it's it's the two you mentioned. The Giannis detail is really fascinating, being that Atlanta had a real shot at getting him. They just needed to trade out to number 13. And what's interesting, I don't think a lot of fans really realize how much the free agency upcoming, obviously free agency happens a couple days after the draft every year, it plays a big factor in this decision-making. And Dallas was, at the time of the 2013 draft, 
They were even looking ahead to 2014 free agency and trying to maintain cap space to go after LeBron and Carmelo. I mean, they were going after Dwight Howard in 2013, too. They didn't want to take another first-round pick who was going to guarantee four years onto their cap sheet. They were looking to trade out of 13 and, and, and take on, you know, something that wasn't going to put future money on their books. And Atlanta, they were desperate for Giannis. Danny Ferry, the GM at the time, tried to have Giannis' representative shut him down. They refused to, though. They were, but they did, they did get him to Atlanta. It was the only team that Giannis visited with. They flew him in under cloak and dagger. They put him up in Danny Ferry's house. Again, a covert. They didn't want anybody to know that they were hot on this guy's tail. He had dinner at Danny Ferry's kitchen table with his brother, Thanasis, and Danny Ferry's kids is having Italian takeout and, and envisioning the future of him being the, the franchise face of the Hawks. The only thing was they, they knew that he wasn't going to fall to them at 17, and the, the Mavericks wouldn't take their package of the 17th pick and the 18th pick to get up to 13, which obviously would have been two slots ahead of where he went number 15 to the Bucks. So it, it's just really amazing to hear about how close they really were and, you know, sure enough, obviously, Danny Ferry moves on. They bring in this whole new regime. They got Trey Young, and now everything's going, you know, pretty smoothly with the Hawks. But they came pretty much within inches of landing him. Well, one of the most amazing things about that was that Dallas turns down their trade package to get up. It was number 13, right? Mm-hmm. And they had been telling Atlanta throughout that process, we're not trading the pick, we're not trading the pick. Well, then they yeah. trade the pick to Boston, who does not take on is it's Kelly Olynyk. So there's a part of me that's thinking like, man, if Atlanta just tweaked that package and, you know, maybe given up second round picks like Dallas wanted, or like, I don't, maybe there was a way they could have done it. They just weren't creative enough, I guess. Like maybe they were just really stuck on giving up 17 and 18. It's just amazing to think like they came so close to getting it. And then I also just want to touch on the Embiid part of it as well. There was a moment where the Milwaukee front office was like really keyed in on, we're going to have the front court of the future, all of this length, Embiid and Giannis. Man, yeah. like, it's funny to think both Milwaukee and Philadelphia had a chance at that combination, and they both missed it. Yeah, yeah. the Bucks had a real cheat code with Luke Gambamute, who obviously, maybe not obviously, some people probably know this, Luke Gambamute discovered Joel at a youth camp in Cameroon and ultimately helped push him to bring coming to Florida and playing prep school. And then that started his track on getting to Kansas and then getting to the league and the Bucks, you know, they got dinner with him in LA and they really wanted him to come to Milwaukee and work out after that big LA workout that you mentioned, it was the Wasserman pro day. No one had seen Joel since he broke his back um, or it was a stress fracture, whatever it was that ended his freshman season at Kansas. And everyone lined this high school gym in Santa Monica and watched him like dunk from the foul line and tear down the rim and knock down three pointers and, Milwaukee wanted wanted him, and he said, you know what? I need to work out with Cleveland first. They had the number one pick, and he gets to the Cavs workout, and Cavs officials to this day maintain that Joel, even though he was having the best workout any one of those people had ever seen, hitting 14 straight threes from the corner, talking trash, bodying up the six-foot-ten coaches that the Cavs had playing him one-on-one, he broke his foot in that workout and that immediately ruled him out there. And the Bucks wouldn't have taken him at two either because I have Mark Lazary, Bucks owner, on the record in the book saying that they wanted to make the playoffs and they had to take the more ready-made player in Jabari Parker. They wouldn't have taken Jabari over Andrew Wiggins if, if that was the case 
back before when it was when it was considered Joel number one and Wiggins was going to fall to Philly at three. Um, so it, it just is interesting that everyone at the top of these organizations sometimes has you know conflicting agendas and what they're trying to do. You know the longest view in the room in Philly or you know the Bucks wanting to get back to that postseason. Do you think if Cleveland had taken Joel Embiid, they would have traded him for Kevin Love? If he was healthy, no. If he was healthy, I think they would have kept him. And who knows? Maybe LeBron and Joel Embiid are paired together, and LeBron might not even have gone to L.A. when he did in 2018. Maybe Embiid is the big, is the mobile modern-day big man that the Warriors' small ball lineup wouldn't have had an answer for. And maybe the Cavs win a couple more, not just that one championship in 2016. And maybe LeBron is riding out his career in the sunset uh, of Northeast Ohio, uh, riding Joel's coattails as long as he can. It's a really fascinating what if. I mean, I'll take out the health part of it for a second. Let's say things had played out the way that they actually did. Joel Embiid didn't play his first two years, and that was totally okay in Philly. That wouldn't have been okay in Cleveland, considering the imperative to win with LeBron and to win with Kyrie. But I also just wonder, like, if Joel's there, is Kyrie as eager to get out, right? Like, maybe they don't win in 2016, but they win later down the line when Embiid's healthy. Maybe right as Kyrie is making his trade request, you know, Joel Embiid is coming on and the Cavs say, well, okay, we have LeBron and Embiid. Maybe we're thinking differently about what we want to get for, for Kyrie. Maybe we focus more on young talent. It's a really fascinating what if, but I want to go back to Milwaukee for a second. As you mentioned, Mark Lasry wanted to compete for the playoffs. They didn't want to tank forever. I'm thinking a lot about a story that you put in the book, which I have to ask. I'm not sure if this was literal or not. There's a moment where you talk about how dirty Nerland Sowell's apartment was in Philadelphia. And there's a quote in there that there was shit in the toilet for weeks at a time. Was that literal or was that was that just flowery language? Oh, no, that was literal. That was he literal. didn't flush the I toilet. Mean, oh, my God. I mean, there's other stuff that's come out previously about there being, you know, feces in the carpet and all this type of stuff. There was definitely a lot of off-the-court question marks about New Orleans back then. And even up until, I mean, I think when he turned down that big contract with Dallas and ultimately ended up only signing for the minimum and OKC afterwards before he got to New York. And now he's kind of rehabilitated his career. And I think he'll probably get a pretty decent payday this summer. But I think up until that, that, that free agency, when he realized he was not the max player, he thought he was, there was a lot of issues with their own off the court that, I mean, from the, the shit in the t- toilet to him showing up late to medical training sessions to one time or maybe even multiple times they had to hold the whole team playing waiting for this rookie who was injured to even show up it was really really bad and 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 they had really serious internal conversations from Brett Brown to Sam Hinkie to their security staff to other executives determining whether or not to hire a legitimate full-time quote-unquote babysitter someone to help this guy just show up to things on time. It, it was really, really a masterclass in poor time management and, and, and uh, immaturity, let's say. Well, Giannis gets to Milwaukee, and here's this kid who, like, you know, we, we've heard all the stories about how much he loved Milwaukee and his adventures through Milwaukee as, as a rookie, and as I think he was a teenager when he got drafted. That team was trying to win. Obviously, they weren't successful, but I think that culture probably made a difference for him, right? I mean... If you really think about what Giannis and Nerland Sowell both were when they entered the NBA, 
essentially they were raw athletes. There were a lot of differences, but when you look at how they developed, I do think there's something to be said for the fact that Milwaukee was at least trying to build a culture. There were more veterans on that roster compared to what New Orleans had in Philly where he just didn't have any mentors. So what, I mean, you mentioned that um, the, the Sixers considered giving New Orleans essentially a babysitter. I wonder if that's something you have to do if you have a team with more veterans who can kind of pull them aside and just say like, hey, no, you can't do this. So how do you think, A, tanking teams have grown as far as figuring out how to develop young players from that perspective, right? Like teaching them professionalism. Do you think there have been, do you think teams have learned lessons from situations like New Orleans Noel? And if you think, do you think Philly would do anything differently if they were going to redo that now? I think the veteran being in the locker room, that type of stuff is a little bit overstated. I think what ultimately became an issue in Orlando at, at the same time period, and when Scott Skiles got to that team for that 15-16 season, he just kind of realized that those kids were way too content with losing. And losing didn't impact them too much because they were they were used to losing by that point, right? I think the difference between Giannis and, and Nerland, I mean, Giannis was this wide-eyed kid who was just really excited to be there. I mean, when he walked into the Hawks stadium before the draft during that visit with Danny Ferry, I mean, he was crying tears of joy, just like at the size of it, thinking back to like the little dinky high school-sized gyms that he was playing in in Greece. And he wasn't supposed to play that season in Milwaukee. He was originally supposed to be in the D League before it became the G League. The Bucks just had a bunch of injuries, and, and, and they had to play him pretty much. They had no other option. Um, and I think with Nerlens, because there were veterans around that, that, that first year, too. They had Dad Young. They had Spencer Hawes. Evan Turner, for as much as he's in the book for you know a goofy sideshow he, he, he could have been, and you know he had his own maturity questions a lot of the time, he, he definitely was someone that, I mean, Sam Hinkie drove him to the airport at the deadline in 2014, or didn't drive him. He accompanied him in, in, in the, uh, in the, the uh, chauffeured car that they got for him and thanked him for the veteran leadership that he exhibited that season. So I don't necessarily think the veteran locker room presence is really that big of a deal. I think it's about convincing these guys who are the man their entire lives that this is now your craft and this is now your job, and it's not just going to come as easy to you as it has your whole life. You need to buckle down, become professional, because this this could go away. Just like Nerlens ended up being a minimum contract guy, like you're not going to be the apple of the eye, the, the Cinderella at the ball forever. I think, I think that is hard to communicate to players who are in the middle of a tanking experience where the team is basically straight up saying, you're worth everything. You're worth this whole bad season. I think that's to toe that line between not really caring so much about the present and betting on the future and telling these kids who are the future, you're not everything yet. You still need to grow and you still need to learn and develop. That hinky story about him going to the airport with Evan Turner, the book is full of stories like that. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions about Sam Hinkie because he didn't really talk to the media. I think there was sort of this idea that people had in their head of like, oh, he was totally like antisocial. You know, he's not somebody who was personable that the players like. There are a lot of stories. And don't get me wrong. Like there were a lot of stories in there, too, 
about players being frustrated that they couldn't get clear answers out of Hinky. But there are stories in there, too, of like that Evan Turner story is a good example. There's another story. I can't remember the, the exact player of Sam Hinkie meeting a player's parents and making a strong uh, impression on them. Do you think, like, what, first of all, just I'll throw this out vaguely. What do you think is the biggest misconception about Sam Hinkie and the process? And do you think, I I don't quite know how to frame this other than to say, like, how big an issue do you think personality was for what ultimately went wrong in Philly? Yeah, I think Sam is a really charming guy when he wants to be I, I I've, I've spent a lot of time with him personally and he can really turn it on and, and be friendly and funny and witty and clever and I think his ultimate fatal flaw in Philadelphia was like you mentioned he, he refused to do that publicly and he thought he really did think that it was the ultimate um card he had in his hand to better put Philly in position I mean think about the, the draft workouts, we talked about the Tim Frazier one. I mean, that didn't come out until my book. No, really, very few workouts that Philly had. They, they worked out almost 150 players every single draft that Hinky ran. Most teams work out around 50. So not only was he working out three times as many, he they weren't announcing them. And it was driving the local media insane for one. But I also think it was kind of brilliant. Why, why should you advertise to your competitors who you're considering drafting at your slots. Um, but the, the doubt, and, and you're right that there, there were players that felt he was, was kind to them and, and took a special interest in them. Robert Covington, TJ McConnell, Christian Wood is someone that really thinks that Sam took a special liking to him. Obviously Joel Embiid does as well, but there were certain instances where his strategic tinkering and how he operated kind of, you know, buttoned up and, and kept things close to the vest, definitely burn people and, and rub people the wrong way. Where I think the worst example is trading for Andre Karolinka. I think it was in that 2014-15 season where he told Billy King, the GM of the Nets at the time, you know, we're just going to waive him and he'll, he'll be a test of market and, and just be one of these buyout guys. But then they wanted him to report. And Philly started fining Andre Karolinka for not showing up, knowing full well that Andre Karolinka's wife was having a really difficult pregnancy in New York. And he did not want to uproot her from her doctors to go play for one of the worst teams in the league. He would have done so for a chance at winning a, a championship, but not to go play for the tanking Philadelphia 76ers. And that's the kind of stuff that I think really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. The fact that he wouldn't, um, you know, he wouldn't really barter off his negotiating uh, tactics, that, that, that four-year non-guaranteed hinky special. And he wasn't even really entertaining giving uh, other other veteran guys, you know, contracts in the free agency every summer. He was trying to uphold cap space for future flexibility for trades. So I think that type of stuff, not returning guys' calls, that's where he pisses some people off and rubs people, people the wrong way. But I, I do think he is a really good guy on the whole, and he does have a heart for these people and understands that these people do have pe- do have lives and families and all that type of stuff. That's something, I mean, the more – I've been doing this full time for a few years, but I've learned in general that a lot of the guys that fans sort of think of as prickly, it's not always that simple. Like I remember the first time I went to cover a Spurs game, I was kind of nervous because Popovich has that reputation. But I remember somebody kind of pulled me aside and like we were talking about it. They're like, oh yeah, Popovich is a great guy. He just doesn't like being on camera. So if you get him off camera, it's a lot easier. Now I didn't, but I've heard that with a lot of guys that it's never as simple as like, 
oh, he's just not an emotionally smart guy. Oh, he's not, like, super personable, whatever. I think that was sort of the case with Hanky, as you said. But he pissed off so many different camps, right? There were all the agents of players he wasn't signing. There were the owners who were losing gate revenue because his team was so bad. I've had this pet theory for a long time that the real thing Sam Hickey should have done to save his job is to sign Allen Iverson because it would have been such a circus that not only would he have sold a bunch of tickets, he would have thrown the Philadelphia media totally off of the scent, right? Like that's all they would have talked about. Nobody would have talked about what's going on with Nerland so well. So that's always been my theory there. We'll obviously never get resolution to that. I have two big macro tanking questions that I want to ask before I let you go. Let's do it. If, let's say tomorrow Adam Silver calls you and he says, Jake, you've got carte blanche. You can fix the draft system. You can get rid of it entirely. You can do Mike Zarin's wheel. You can do whatever you want. What would you do to, I don't want to say fix tanking, but if you had total control over how new players enter the NBA, what would you do? Well, I, I think the draft is important. I, I'm, not, I'm not against tanking. That's partially why I wrote it. I, I think there are ways to go about it that are better than others. I think the Sacramento Kings are listed in the book primarily as a cautionary tale of how to not tank. They weren't bad enough, and they had all this palace intrigue and musical chairs at the top of their front office that prevented them from having um, you know, a real forward direction. But for these small market teams like Sacramento, like OKC, like Detroit, like Orlando – they're not getting all-stars in free agency. They're just not. And the only way they would is if they had an all-star there in place already. Flashback to, you know, Tim Duncan being tempted to uh, join Tracy McGrady in Orlando. Very rarely does a team get that type of guy that isn't through the draft. And I think to give those smaller markets a fighting chance, you need to have a system in place that can you know, filter these young guys to those markets. Now, if, if you do want to get rid of tanking, I think the only true dynamic to do so is to institute Mike Zarin's wheel concept. I think as long as we have your draft positioning dependent on your record, look at this this exact season. With the lottery form that got passed due to this tanking error that we're talking about right here, where the, where the worst team only has a 14% chance now, just like the bottom two and three teams instead of a 25% chance, we're still seeing, you know, Houston, Detroit, Orlando, and OKC tanked more aggressively than Hinkie ever did, sending guys home for half the year, trading a bunch of dudes in one season in one fell swoop, and just plummeting down the standings. Hinkie never sent Al Horford home for half the season to put his feet up on the couch or put John Wall on the bench just to let Kevin Porter run wild. They weren't doing that, and I think there's there were the clear benefits to doing so are because these guys are that important. Even if you only have a 14% chance on number one pick, if it's a deep draft like this class, getting a top five pick still has a lot of massive value too. So if you do want to get rid of tanking, which I don't, I think there's always going to be bad teams. Look look throughout NBA history. Look at the standings every single year. There's always a team that has around 20 wins, and a lot of those teams weren't by design. The, the Knicks, when they fell to the worst record in the league in 2018-19, that Zion draft, they were not originally tanking for, for Zion. They were originally hoping to win 50 games that year. So if you're not the Knicks, if you're not L.A., who can be the worst team in this time period we're talking about, the Lakers literally had the worst record from 2012 to 2017, worse than Philly, worse than anybody. 
And they still just locked into LeBron and free agency. If you're not that market, if you don't have that margin for error, you really do need the draft in order to give yourself a fighting chance to compete with those guys. My ideal scenario would be to eliminate the draft entirely. Like, I think if you wanted to create a system that, A, rewards competence, and B, is as fair as possible, what you would do is hard cap, no draft, and just let teams sign rookies for whatever the market dictates that they're worth. And that also gives rookies the chance to say, like, well, my priority is winning. Well, my priority is money. Well, my priority is playing time. Whatever it is, it gives them a little bit more control over the process as well. I don't think that will ever happen, but, you know, that would be what I would consider the ideal solution. But you touched on Sacramento as a team that was never quite bad enough. I kind of want to go in the other direction and talk about teams that aren't quite good enough as the sort of final frontier of tanking. We saw this with Oklahoma City, right? They were a team that, as constructed at the time, was never going to win a championship. The Russell Westbrook, Paul George core was going to be a first or second round team. Obviously, trade requests kind of forced their hand, and that's what pushed them into the situation they're in now with a billion picks and having made those trades. Something that I've wondered is, do you think any team that's in the situation Oklahoma City was in would ever willingly go down that route, right? Like, I'm calling it super tanking when you're a good team and you just decide, well, we're not good enough, so we are going to intentionally make the choice to strip our roster for assets and go all in on tanking. Do you think we'll ever see a team make that choice willingly? No, I also think that OKC was in a very unique situation. Like Boston, they were able to get back to that 2015 playoffs because they had KG and Paul Pierce net back those Nets picks, right? Like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown were picked with Brooklyn selections. Um, So... They, were, they had those in their back pocket. They were able to go um, compete for the playoffs while Hinky and other teams were still kind of you know, playing the lottery odds. With OKC, they didn't necessarily just decide to trade Russell Westbrook and Paul George. They both wanted out. Paul George wanted to go with Kawhi Leonard to L.A., and Russ wanted to go to Houston to play with James Harden. So as, as much as it was really expert uh, you know, maneuvering from Sam Presti to recoup as many assets as he could from that situation – he didn't really pull the trigger. It, it, it was it was a it was a trigger that was given to him on a golden silver platter, you know, by those two guys saying we don't want to be here anyway. So I think it will be very rare. Um, well, that summer was the summer of you know superstar tandem popping up everywhere, right? Kyrie and KD, Russ and uh, and Harden, um, Paul George and Kawhi. Um, LeBron and Anthony Davis. I think I think it'll be um, it, it would have to be you know just a whole compounding of a bunch of events for that situation to come up again. I think sooner or later, when you look at new owners are younger and a lot of them are coming from that hedge fund background of like you know positive yep. arbitrage and maximizing assets. I do think someday we are going to get an owner who comes in. I don't know what the team is, and I don't know what the bar is for how good slash bad they have to be. I do think eventually an owner is going to realize, wait a second, if I strip this roster, I probably have seven or eight first-round picks worth of value here, in addition to all the value I could get from tanking. I am a bit more optimistic that someday some team is going to realize that, but it is such a tough pill to swallow you're obviously, the media is going to have a field day with you. Your fans are going to be, or at least some of them are going to be unhappy. I maintain that fans more than anything just want to know that you have a plan. I don't think yeah. fans really care about the whole like, 
oh, we just want a good product on the floor. We want a team the city can be proud of. I, I think clearly, yeah, Philly was a great example of this, right? Like they were so all in on Hinky from the start because it seemed like they at least knew what they were doing. But Jake, the book was an absolute pleasure to read. Um, Built to Lose. It is one of the best basketball books I've read in quite some time. Uh, where can people buy it? Where can people... How do you want to plug the book? I'll just give you the floor. Yeah, well, the full title is Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. And I, I, I really think anyone who's on NBA Twitter who loves the league will... Uh, they'll, they'll love all the all the new information and the stories that are inside of it from from those 300 interviews that I tease at the top. And it's available anywhere books are sold. Amazon, bookshop.org if you want to support a local bookseller. Barnes & Noble, my publisher, Triumph Books. Um, it's, uh, you know, I, I'm really proud of it. And it's been really nice and rewarding to have people like yourself give such great feedbacks. So I think uh, I think anyone listening will uh, will enjoy it as well. Exactly. I think anybody who listens to this podcast and is interested in the NBA from the lens of team building and transactions will love this book. But I know you have to go, so I'll let you go. Jake Fisher, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on. I'd love to have you back. But for now, everybody, A, go like and subscribe to this podcast, because if you haven't, well, I'm, I'm sort of surprised why you'd be listening. But also, go buy the book. The book is fantastic. Built to lose once again. But that'll do it for us today. Colin and I will be back later in the week. And yeah, that'll do it.